Hello and welcome to another JuxtaCast. This week, not coming to you from the city of the future, Milton Keynes, but a bit more of a remote flavour. Uh, so I'm actually in Bristol. I think we've got people in London, people in Dubai. Uh, so I'm Joe Littlejohn. I work in uh, the consulting side of Juxt. I work across many Juxt consulting projects. And, uh, I'm Aaron Nauf. I'm a platform engineer working for Juxt, working on a variety of uh, projects over the years. And I'm Marius. I'm a software engineer working for Jogs. So Malcolm, our usual host, he's on holiday this week. He's in Italy, I believe. So I'm sure he's no doubt enjoying some good local wine and food this week, uh, making the most of the uh, Italian sun. Uh, so a bit of news. So Jeremy Taylor, our resident database and bi-temporality expert, He's running a webinar. We'll link to the recording. So if you don't know anything about bitemporality and you're looking for an introduction, or if you're interested in how bitemporality is going to uh, help you build fully auditable uh, systems, uh, then that's a good session to check out. And I think Jeremy has done a lot of research in this area. He's been working in this area for many years. So he's a, he will be an excellent guide to introduce you to the concept of bitemporality. So this week on the JuxCast, we thought that we would dedicate this session to platform engineering. So a lot of businesses are thinking about developer productivity, security, compliance across their systems. Uh, at Jux, we've been involved in platform engineering projects, and these things can be hard to get right at scale across many teams and when you have a large and disparate technical estate. So uh, it's a hot topic at the moment, platform engineering. So we thought we would dedicate this session to it. Uh, and firstly, I guess, if you don't know much about what platform engineering really is, Aaron, how would you describe uh, for the uninitiated, what is platform engineering? Well, I guess for me, it's a uh, evolution of DevOps, sort of DevOps meets, uh, meets a product mindset. We move, uh, we move from a place where we kind of drifted into having a, uh, a, a DevOps team who provided a service to the app, to the application developers and basically did all the scripts they didn't want to do. And now, they've, now they build a product which uh, provides the service that those scripts used to do poorly. And how about you, Marius? What does, uh, how, how would you define platform engineering to someone new to the concept? Uh, I think Aaron did a pretty good job uh, defining it, but if, if I was to to put it in a single sentence, uh, I'd say it's about developing potentially internal platforms for self-service where the target customer is the developer. So I guess one interesting um, phrase that's been thrown around for, for a long time, I think, is this notion. And I, I guess it came sort of from the DevOps mindset of trying to bring developers and ops kind of together as, as one. Uh, this phrase, you build it, you run it. Uh, I'm interested, I, I, I think some, some people see this phrase as uh, something that has, has had its time. And, uh, but I, I think in some ways that uh, platform engineering is really a different way of looking at this phrase, you build it, you run it. And I think that phrase is still just as relevant for teams and, and businesses trying to build a platform, uh, build out their own internal developer platforms. I think this notion of you build it, you run it is still uh, key. Yeah, I think that's, uh, that's true. The thing that platform engineering brings is reducing the cognitive load involved in, in doing that whole you build it, you run it thing, where the... Uh, the the, the the scope of things that an app team has to build and run for themselves has just increased over time with the advent of uh, of um, sort of uh, cloud compute where everything's become virtualized you don't need, you don't only um, have to spin up vms anymore <laughs> in fact it's becoming more and more rare that you actually do that uh, but you, but you have to uh, um, understand all sorts of different networking-based uh, concepts, and you also have to understand uh, uh, concepts around how to run a database securely. How to, and there's any number of different things that you need to um, that that you need to um, that, that you really need to get your head around in order to do a good job across a vast scope of what it takes to run a modern application. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the ownership, uh, this I, this notion of sort of ownership, you build it, you run it. I think that that is still absolutely relevant. The, uh, but hopefully being able to achieve that in your teams should now mean that you actually need to know less and do less of all of the work involved in running it. But this idea of you still own the applications that you're shipping uh, is, is still absolutely key, but you may well be getting a lot of help uh, to enable you to do that well from a, a, an internal platform team. Yeah, absolutely. The way we see it on, for example, the current project that I'm working on is about providing a foundation for people to build upon where most of the early problems are already solved for them. So it sort of it gets you straight away 50, 60, 70% there. Uh, and, and yeah, the rest of it is, is abstracted away for you, for you, for you. Platform engineering, as, as I mentioned earlier, is a hot topic at the moment. You know, we've got PlatformCon, we've got many, many sort of uh, active blogs dedicated for plat to platform engineering. Gartner's talking about platform engineering. It's, uh, you know, LinkedIn is awash with posts about platform engineering. Why do you think that this is, but uh, in, in some ways, I think these, these, uh, these concepts aren't new and a lot of larger tech businesses have been uh, attempting to do things along the lines of building out internal platforms to, to help their developers for a very long time. So why do you think there's a renewed interest now? That's a uh, very good question. I, and I confess, I don't know the answer. The uh, platform engineering is, uh, it, I think, specifically, the recent hype is around internal developer platforms. And I think platform engineering is maybe a broader concept than internal developer platforms. But uh, but developer experience is a is a concept that's become um, starting to get more airtime recently as well, and then perhaps for a little bit longer than uh, than internal developer platforms have. But uh, and and to me, a internal developer platform is really about putting that developer experience front and center and making it someone's primary role to to uh, to enhance that. Those those internal develop, developer platforms are probably the things that I'm sort of closer to than actual platform engineering at, at this moment in time, at least. Um, so yeah, it's definitely cutting down the time uh, developer needs to ultimately deploy something to production. Um, in theory, if it's done right, what they get out of the box is production grade and production ready. You just need to add the business logic um, on top. Um, then in terms of why now uh, is, is the time where, where we're sort of seeing these things crop up. Um, I don't know, potentially maybe with like Kubernetes and sort of technologies of that sort of getting more and more popularity, it allows you to just move quicker and get further. Um, and at the same time, you, you have the potential lack of skills on that side in your work and your workforce, right? So you so you have people who are, for example, good at writing code, uh, but they don't necessarily uh, know much about, say, Kubernetes, Helm, or or anything, say, cloud related. And if you manage to build that into such a you know internal developer platform, whereby it's either abstracted away from them, which probably isn't you know a good idea, but at least where the learning curve is sort of flattened that, you know, they don't have to sort of go there unless they really need to, um, then you can utilize these people and, uh, and, and they can remain to be productive and, you know, feel good about what they're doing and, and not really be concerned with these sort of other aspects of writing applications unless they really need to get into the details of those. Yeah, I think the, um, the application teams, they, they have a business problem to solve. And, a, um, and in order to solve that business problem, they need to consume uh, all sorts of different uh, um, sort of compute infrastructure and facilities. Like uh, they, may, they might need a database, they might need an, a, a, an event store. They, uh, they're going to need to use all of these things. But unfortunately, to, to a greater and greater extent, this has meant that they, that they need to take responsibility for all of these things. They, they almost need to build them, the amount of, uh, the amount of code that it takes to spin some of this stuff. 
these things are often a distraction from the main from, from the main work that a developer the the, the, the that an application team sees as uh, as their role and platform engineering is really about taking away this this guy's non-value generating undifferentiated heavy lifting and making it someone else's main focus and that someone else is going to do a far better job because they can do it at scale they're going to do it for multiple teams they're going to it's it's their number one job rather than being a distraction and so you're going to get a far higher quality outcome and you're going to reduce the cognitive load on both sides now i was just going to add to that that on top of that you may have systems within the bank that app teams are expected to integrate with so for example um i don't know um, something that would act as like an auth or uh, or a secret management solution and if you bake that in or if you can manage to bake that in into these internal platforms then uh, effectively the company can dictate the the direction in terms of in terms of technology where they want to go and the app developer teams don't really need to be that concerned with it um if it's or if it's catered for that on on that sort of internal development platform level mm. I think it's interesting as well, Marius. You mentioned Kubernetes uh, and the ability to, you know, provide Helm charts, or uh, you know, you might think of Terraform as uh, another useful enabling tool for platform en- for for platform engineering. In the sense that I think a lot of these uh, modern infrastructure tools are nicely modularized in a way that we now have a way to provide help by providing modules within that ecosystem. Uh, and they, they actually create some quite nice dividing lines so that a platform engineering team might be able to help by providing Terraform modules, or they may be able to help by providing Helm charts. They may be able to help by providing, uh, let's say, Docker base images. And I think we've got, we now have, a, you know, in, in recent years, I think what's emerged is quite a, a few useful um, interfaces, if you like, for those um, platform engineering teams to provide help. So I'm not uh, sure that um, all of those things are what I would put into a, um, a into an internal developer platform. So I might use Terraform as as a building block for building my internal developer platform, but providing Terraform modules as the interface you start to run into uh, into abstraction problems and coupling problems there. If I provide a Terraform module to a development team, then I'm imposing on them the requirement to understand Terraform and to learn Terraform and to use Terraform. The, um, whereas we can, uh, we can start to take a much more loosely coupled approach by providing uh, um, the ability for software developers or application teams to describe their workloads using a declarative format like uh, like perhaps um, perhaps a YAML file or something like that. Uh, the uh, the platform that uh, that, that uh, I've been working on recently we uses uh, uses a JSON format, but uh, I probably wouldn't use JSON again simply because it doesn't have any comments in it. <laughs> but uh, the uh, but once and what you achieve when you start to take this declarative approach is you move you move responsibilities around. If I want to um, upgrade from one version of some particular piece of infrastructure to another, that then that will often result, or maybe a different implementation, that, that, that will mean a, a change in the uh, Terraform provider being used. And then I need to expose that out and have, uh, and have the consumers actually start to, cha- to change their Terraform so that they um, so, so they use this different provider. So what, the, what they're getting from me might be a, uh, a Linux container running somewhere, but uh, the, uh, or, or they might get a Linux VM. That's all they care about. They don't care about whether it came from uh, Azure or, uh, or, or Google or, uh, or, or Amazon. They, uh, and so when I swap out that implementation, why should they have to change their code? And so this is this is where uh, tools like Terraform start to reach the edge of what they're good for because they uh, they don't really provide a real abstraction over the underlying implementation. There's no concept of a uh, of a of a generic Terraform 
um, VM, for example. I'm using VMs as an example, but uh, it's probably not the thing you're going to be using. You're going to be doing all the time. There's a, I, I don't know if you're aware of um, Humanitech. So it's a very an interesting en entrant in this space, I think, which uh, again, it's, uh, you, you know, it's, it's a direction in which the application developer begins to declaratively describe their application and the, the specifics of the infrastructure that are introduced to serve their need are completely abstracted away. Um, yes, exactly. Yeah, and that, uh, and that, uh, that enables both sides. That uh, that means the uh, the developer will um, th they maintain a, a a YAML file, a score file, in the case of Humanitech, and that that describes what their workload, what their application actually needs from its infrastructure in as abstract terms. It might say, "I need a Postgres database." It doesn't say that I want uh, I, I want an Azure Postgres database. It doesn't say that I want an Amazon one. It's uh, it says I just want a Postgres database. It doesn't say that I want a uh, a tiny little development version or a, or a massive uh, geo tolerant super scalable production version. It just says I want a Postgres database because that's really all I care about at that level. And then when you want to swap out that uh, one implementation of, a, of that, that database for another, then you don't need to uh, to impact the application team in order to do that. You, the, the platform team can uh, can introduce a, a, a new version of how they how they do their Postgres clustering, or they can do a, a new version, a, 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 an entirely different provider for their uh, Postgres database, and the, it's largely transparent to the application team. Certainly, they shouldn't need to change code. And things like um, you know, you touched on it a bit there, but things like the level of redundancy required in a certain environment or, you know, the non-functionals that are expected in a certain environment. This might be something that the application team doesn't need to think so much about if what they're describing is, well, we need we need to persist data here. So we need a Postgres instance, but we're not going to, we don't know how that is managed in this environment. And, and uh, you know, the, the non-functionals, they, they might not need to think so much about. Um, so, I mean, one thing that's, um, uh, maybe uh, a kind of a, an interesting topic, I suppose, is this question of when building out an internal developer platform, um, uh, what, it, what is the right way to think about adoption? So is, uh, in, is internal tooling that is being provided to help developers, is, is, it, is the right approach to uh, attempt to help developers where they are and, and, and try to look for ways for a platform engineering team to um, uh, you know, do some of the heavy lifting and provide tools and uh, things that can help? Or is the job of the platform engineering team to, to build out an all-encompassing developer platform that effectively must be used in its entirety? So I just want, wonder about the, the, you know, I think maybe some, some uh, platform initiatives of the past might have been to create a very bespoke and all-encompassing platform. Uh, and maybe, you know, we might see an approach that alternative approaches applied these days that uh, are not, don't necessarily require full buy-in. So I just, I, I wondered about what, um, you know, wh which of those two, um, uh, approaches you've seen work well or not work well. Mm, that's that, that, that's interesting. I think it will. I think it mostly depends. Uh, depends on the setting. Depends on um, type of development people are doing. Um, in our current setting, uh, what we have is a you could describe as like a very sort of solid core. Uh, that is non-negotiable. Uh, the tech choices have been made there, and people just need to get on board. And that is basically because the company chose that direction. Um, and then number of sort of smaller, almost like satellite solutions around it, where you can pick and choose that still ultimately interface with the core solution, as you like. I think for me, it's about making sure that if you're going to solve a problem, you take it off the developer's plate. It's no longer their problem to solve, it's yours and you've solved it for them completely. So, uh, and 
so if if you uh, if you if so so what we did with a uh, platform that I'd uh, built over the last few years was uh, to basically say that if you have a twelve factor app that is uh, that um, has no persistence requirements, then uh, we can provide a complete solution for you. We can uh, we we build a platform that uh, that will host your twelve factor app. The um, of course. When we say no persistence requirements, that doesn't mean that you don't have a database, but it means you're not allowed to save files to the local disk, right? The, uh, and we never had any intention of providing a database. That's not that's, that wasn't our game. And but so what we did is we just got out of people's way. However, they wanted to access their database. That's just not a problem we're solving for them today. The uh, they 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 do what they always did. But just because we can't solve that problem doesn't mean we can't solve this other problem. And so the, the, the key thing there, I, I kind of think of it as the interface segregation uh, principle applied in the large, where it, it, the interface segregation principle states that if I want to adopt a method, I shouldn't have to, um, I, I shouldn't have to depend on an interface that brings along a, a different method that I don't need. The, uh, it, when, when applied to platforms, it's like saying, if if I want to uh, if I want to use uh, this platform for deploying my twelve factor app, I shouldn't also have to get this really crap job that they've done of their database. <laughs> the uh, I should uh, you know they should provide the thing they do well and don't bother me with the thing they don't do well. So there is, I, I guess, there is uh, um, uh, still some essential choice in within the engineering teams, and I think this is this is an interesting question, isn't it? Because a lot of um, you know modern approaches to platform engineering, I guess, are about treating these internal um, uh, your your own internal developer platform truly as a product that has uh, a, an audience and has and has uh, customers, if you like. Uh, and I think the 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 presence of some kind of choice within engineering teams of whether they're going to use your platform for this or uh, you know whether they think that the that the help that you're providing in a certain area uh, is useful to them. Uh, that can be quite a good, uh, you know, dr something to drive you to actually create useful systems if there is some choice. I agree. I think that for me, certainly in the early days of a platform, having the ability to test whether you've actually done a good job, to measure your your own performance as a, as, as platform engineers, to, to measure the success of your product, you need to have some optionality. People need to be able to vote with their feet. If they... Otherwise, you go. Oh, everyone's using our uh, using our platform. We must be successful. But in, in reality, everyone's cursing your platform. I guess also, the platform engineering team actually has a really good opportunity to influence the engineering culture within the business. And hopefully, it's a team that's put together that really uh, understands the engineering culture in some kind of aspirational way and knows where where the uh, engineering team should be taken in a way and takes looks at the best things that are going on and tries to bring those techniques into the platform. It's probably no coincidence that you, within the system that you uh, had been working on, that you chose the 12-factor app as the, the kind of application that you would like to support because there were some characteristics of this that you felt this is actually a good way to build things. And so if teams are coming to you and they're not structuring their applications in that way, and they could be, they probably should look at your system and think maybe, maybe we should be using that kind of inspiration of how we should uh, structure our applications. That's absolutely true. I do personally think that 12-factor brought a lot to the table, especially as we moved from uh, monoliths to microservices. And that opinion definitely was reflected in the design of the, uh, of the platform that I built. However, the, uh, I think it's also really important to, to be aware that although, I mean, I have opinions about all sorts of things, but in, the, in my role as a platform engineer, some of those opinions are just not relevant. <laughs> the, uh, and, and the, um, so the opinion about the 12-factor thing that has to pay for itself. And the way it did pay for itself is that we brought uh, zero downtime deployments to the, uh, to the table. If 12-factor brings, brings with it a kind of a contract that, that, is a, that is key to enabling zero downtime deployments. And so we were able to do zero downtime deployments of the underlying platform 
while the uh, while applications were running on top of it, and the applications will will be available to business the entire time. And as 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 well as that, we basically brought zero down time deployments of the application themselves to the um, to the uh, the space. And uh, and that was virtually free. I mean, that's it's not it's not never going to be entirely free. There is a there is a there's a discipline that you have to that you have to, to have to apply to zero downtime deployments. But the heavy lifting, as far as the code and and the and architectural changes required, were were kind of that's what that's that's what that opinion uh, brought. That's how that opinion pays for itself. But I think it's just one example of how. Uh, you know, putting together that platform platform engineering team, or you know, building an internal developer platform, it's a it's an opportunity to uh, you know propagate best practices and and it, you know get get people together that um, uh, have some good ideas about how teams should be working, and those things can influence just the very fact that there is help available if you follow this path can actually guide people towards, uh, you know, coming around to that way of building things. And of course, there will always be exceptions. And, you know, the 12-factor app is a good example where there are many applications that actually may not benefit from being written in that way or, or can't be for one reason or another. But actually, there are a very large number of applications that can be and should be. Actually, that's a, it's funny you should mention that. We, uh, we made a foolish mistake in the early days of uh, building this platform and we decided, right, oh, we've got this great platform, let's start running everything on it. And we started running build agents on it. And that, but without uh, stopping to think that, hang on, a build agent is in no way a 12-factor app. And so uh, there was uh, we we um, kind of really got uh, really got kicked in the ass by this uh, by this mistake when we were running a build on a build agent that was on our platform that was deploying our platform, and the uh, and we took down a uh, the, the node that the build was running on in the middle of the build. And we uh, and completely uh, uh, destroyed all of our stero- all of our Terraform state files, and that took uh, some work to recover. <laughs> Fortunately, that happened in Dev, and uh, we were uh, <laughs> we we we, and we had uh, we were nowhere near impacting actual uh, developers' lives. But uh, yeah, that was a lesson. Yeah, builds can't be killed seamlessly at any time. <laughs> um, so, assuming then that there is some. Um, you know, we've talked about optionality and, and that actually that, that kind of can be a good thing. Uh, it kind of introduces the question, especially for larger organizations with lots of, te- you know, lots of departments, lots of teams. It does introduce this question of if there is some uh, choice, what are some good strategies for adoption? Marius, I wondered if you had any ideas about what, you know, what have you seen work around adoption? Um, what we, for example, have done where by the, our product is effectively the, the product that the platform serves you, that the, the, the unit that people get, it, you can think of it as like a um, sort of starter services. Uh, and then in a larger context, like start, starter systems. So in order to, for example, like get buy-in, um, we launched sort of fairly small and we open it up to other, other developers within the company and they could contribute in uh they could you know raise any sort of queries questions effectively we arrived at the best way of doing things together i mean we were the ones who sort of like took direction on it but uh the idea was that we would always be open and open-minded about what is the best way of achieving x and y um and then it was basically the question of you know finding your first clients uh wasn't difficult to find the first clients amongst the group of people that basically helped contribute to what this thing should look like and 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 and, and how it should work uh and then interestingly enough it was it was like a long pause where there were more and more people sort of using it but no one was really sort of using it in production yet and 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 effectively it sort of like got to a point where it was almost like a queue of people and we, we knew that the minute the first people land in production, first clients land in production, uh, the rest will just follow. Uh, and, and that has ultimately materialized. The pickup was sort of slower than I thought it would be. Uh, but the minute that has happened, like the floodgates opened and 
uh, and literally everyone started using it. And I think now we're literally on track for the current platform to be the mandated default choice uh, in the in the company. And what what do you think um, works best as a as a way to get teams onboarded? I mean, sometimes of course internal. If you think about internal products, there is sometimes a bit of a natural problem, right, with these internal initiatives not being well documented. You know, you touched on 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 developer experience, Aaron, and 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 things earlier. So, um, I I think that's one thing that we've seen, right, is that this internal developer experience, whether it's really the good documentation, uh, you know, a good good uh, model for con contributions and a kind of bit of an open source mindset like these things are essential to get teams on board and they can't really be just an afterthought no absolutely i think documentation is outside of it, of the quality of the thing itself is probably like maybe the second most important thing some people would argue it, it maybe is the first but then you can't have if you don't have a quality product it doesn't matter that you've got quality uh, documentation uh but but Ultimately, yes, you know, you will have to support your clients. Uh, and in order to, like, if, you know, if, if, if you do a bad job at documenting it, uh, you will not be able to scale your team with client demands just to sort of, you know, have people that, to take tasks on. Uh, so, for example, in our case, we involved technical writers and they actually... Uh, helps out quite a lot because developers could just effectively document stuff from a dev perspective and they took it and turned it into, well, you know, actually really beautiful, really readable documentation. Um, and, and, and that helped a lot. So, um, you know, then there's the culture of support. Like if something is documented and people people always always prefer this sort of like face to face approach rather than uh, reading documentation. Unfortunately, like m most people will, will will still come to you and effectively almost like nag you for an answer, even though it it it's right there in the docs, right? So it's almost like like there's an aspect of a culture in terms of supporting these clients that you always sort of make them fall back to the docs or almost make them find the answer themselves and, and and sort of don't give in too easily yeah that's where a, maybe a bit of a um you know just like with other products right we you know people people are using SaaS products and other kind of good quality um tooling of all kinds and usually the um actually reaching out to a support person is kind of a last resort right you want to be able to solve your problem yourself not raise a raise a ticket and uh, you know wait for something and so i think uh, you know that that should be the goal right that whether it's that you're really encouraging people to approach it in that way that it's a self-service thing and if they can't self-serve there's something kind of not not working quite well here you, you you would certainly hope so, right? And 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 I mean, we've seen sort of a broad spectrum of of clients. There are, for example, people that have basically taken it and went all the way to production, and we actually never heard from them at all. And we just find out that they are in production because it's like got flagged up somewhere that you know this team has gone to prod. And and on the other end of the spectrum, um, you will have people that will, you know, regardless of how how explicit or clear you make the documentation it will not be explicit or clear enough and and oddly enough like this is a actually a reasonably this is a topic that reasonably often comes up whereby you know there, there is a case that someone some sort of didn't get something or it wasn't obvious and like oh do we need to do do we need to change the documentation and you know you'll never be able to like arrive at a situation where you know a hundred percent of your clients will, will will just get it uh you know you shouldn't that's trying to sort of stop you trying, but but you know you've got to be, you've, you've got to draw the line somewhere, right? Sorry, I was just going to say I think it's also really important to um, to understand that when people come to you for for support, that that's a real opportunity to uh, to understand their mileage on your system, and uh, the uh, and you know you you're not going to build the right platform if you don't have that uh, that touch point. So pr providing absolutely stellar support, it's a real boost to the developer experience, but it's also a real boost to the platform team as well. 
uh, although there's a balance you don't uh, you um you provide uh, too good a uh, sort of uh, hands-on face-to-face support and you can create a learned helplessness in the uh, in in your uh, consumers and uh, that's a um that's that's also makes a rod for your own back i'm interested you know often products have if you're thinking about bringing a new product to market you're no doubt people are going to be thinking about um, sort of metrics and, and how to measure the success of that product. And it might, you know, it might, be, it might just be purely financial, but there'll be no doubt certain leading indicators of whether uh, that, that product is, is doing well. Um, so uh, how, you know, how, how do you think businesses should be measuring the success of their um, uh, platform engineering efforts? So um, I was at a uh, um, at I think it was DevOps days a year or two back, and this was just as the whole internal developer platform hype was kicking off, and the um, and, and I had a whole bunch of uh, of uh, vendors of brand new products come to me, and uh, they were trying to sell me on this idea I should buy their portal or and. They would. One of the key selling points I always brought was you'll be able to measure your developers' performance. You'll be able to um, figure out if they've got the uh, if they're adhering to your policies, if they're uh, if they if, if they've got uh, the the right level of code coverage, if they're uh, you know the. For me, I, the response that I always had was, I don't want to measure my developers. I want to measure me. I want to know if I'm providing what my developers are looking for and and you could argue that on the one hand the purpose of uh, of building this uh, this tool suite for your uh, for your developers is to uh, is to make them uh, better at delivering for the business and uh, so there is a sort of a second order outcome of measuring the developers performance but the first order outcome for me is what do my developers think of the uh, of of the platform how much are they getting out of it and so the, the approach that, uh, that we're trying to take with the, uh, with, a, with the project that I'm working on at the moment is to, first of all, make the work visible. And the, the, the work that I'm talking about here is the work that developers have to do. For me, there's, kind of, there's two kinds of work developers do. There's this inner loop, which is their, uh, the, their code build test push. The, um, that's, and that's their value generating loop. That's where they build business features. And that's what they get paid for. And then there's a, uh, a huge amount of stuff outside of that that's as a distraction. It's, it's, that's, that's all of that uh, um, sort of non-value generating, undifferentiated, heavy lifting or toil that they, uh, that, that they spend a lot of time on. And when, when you build your platform, you, the, the, the moment you launch it, you, you, you want, you're wanting to launch early, so you, you're coming up with a minimum viable product and that the moment you launch it, what you want to get is uh, you're not going to have it doing everything for them. And if you say, I'm going, to, I'm going to automate one of those many things that you do, then you can launch your platform and they'll say, yep, there's, uh, it's, uh, it's done that one thing. Great with success. We can go home. At that point, you have no visibility of all of the other things you don't do for them. So we start to look at um, okay. So what is what are the set of things you do to take an application from concept to production? And in some organisations, that can be a large, involved, very long process. And there are and there will be many steps. And you won't automate all of them on day one. But having a view of how many of those steps you have automated, measuring how long it takes the developer to go through that full process measuring the, uh, um, the difference you can make to that full process as you start automating like one step or two steps or three steps, then uh, that's at, at that point, you're starting to then be able to measure the success of your platform rather than the success of your developers. What, what we found really difficult, for example, on the topic of measuring success and, 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 and specifically measuring the the, the metric that was picked was was how many man hours, man days would a given feature or a combination of features ultimately save. And when we would talk informally to clients, 
they'll be very open and be like, oh, yes, this has actually like saved us, you know, like this many man days, blah, 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 blah. And when we asked them to actually sort of put pen to paper, whereby, you know, higher management effectively wanted figures and they started putting it down, it would, they were like, <laughs> okay, but we can't actually tell them that. We can't tell them that, you know, like effectively now, you know, I'm asking for like 10 more people and I'm actually here, I'm telling them that, well, I could do it just five. Right. So uh, there's a good sort of, there's a good balance that needs to be struck there, I guess. Yeah. How, how do you explain that, you know, three quarters of your work was spent on sort of pointless toil that didn't contribute to achieving your, your application's goal up until now? Yeah. So, so this, this is my feature approach, uh, I think works best whereby you, um, you effectively sell your platform by, um, how to put it by covering effectively what, I don't know, what, what, what integrations you cover for out of the box, what the, the fact that know, someone gets like CICD integration that they don't have to effectively invest time in. And, and, um, yeah, it's, it's about what the developer doesn't have to do anymore if they choose this solution over effectively starting from scratch. But you can also look at um, things like uh, degrees of, uh, of consistency of, 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 of application of policies and standards, right? So one of the, uh, in large enterprises, one of the things that's difficult to do, you, you might uh, go and you might go out to market and you might hire absolutely top talent and the, uh, and say, and, and you have dozens of teams or, uh, that are, let's imagine, all awesome and they all, uh, they all do all of the things that that they're supposed to do in order to uh, in order to be compliant with uh, with with regulations and with with policies and with standards, but how do you know that? How how can you assert that? And uh, the uh, you can't go around and audit every single one of them. The the overhead of for for all concerned is uh, is too much. So you have to start going. Okay, so how else do I assert that things are that standards are consistently applied? You'd have to have you have to narrow down and, and uh, focus in on the on a on a few ways of doing things, and so that you lessen your audit load. And so when you um, when you start able to have your your platform just basically do some of these things for people, then you just it's only it's only your platform that needs to be audited rather than every team's own solution to that problem. Right, and so degrees of, uh, and so you, you, you get this uh, this ability to assert at scale that yes, your organisation does consistently adhere to this to, to this requirement. Truly, does become impossible when you have a large number of teams, uh, all taking their own approach to doing these things. Whether you know, I think obviously there, there's a kind of a first step in that on that journey, which is making those requirements and the things that you expect from teams very clear but as you say Aaron there there is no way to truly assert that your system is compliant you know if there are certain variety you know certain cross-cutting um you know restrict uh, rules or 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 requirements they might be around uh you know handling authorization correctly they might be around data handling they might be related to gdpr or other other sort of privacy legislation and these are things that you do need to be able to assert with confidence across a platform and and the, the only real way of doing that is to bring the kind of consistency that you can get from uh you know taking those decisions away from engineers and they often they don't really need to see this as uh, you know, something that is restricting what engineers can do, because I think it can be very freeing to have some of these things just done for you. You know, for just it can be very freeing to have the team able to have the freedom in a way to focus on uh, their own domain and not have to think about all these things and be uh, concerned about whether they've taken all the right steps to to be compliant. If I even just take the example of a CI pipeline, the um, over the years that I've been doing uh, the, the continuous delivery, the, uh, the 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 number of things that you can that people expect to be in your CI pipeline has just grown every year. There's something new that they want in there, and you you will launch a new application and getting all of those things into that CI pipeline. It's a non-small job, you know. We used to talk about iteration zero, where your first sprint was spent uh, was spent getting your path to production sorted out. But uh, if you have to put to write the code from scratch to put all of the checks that you that people realistically expect to be in a modern CI pipeline, 
and you, it's, it's more than one sprint of work. <laughs> the, um, and you can, you can basically fast forward all of that by, by cookie cuttering that out. And uh, that's, a, um, a, a, that's a huge benefit. No developer wants to write that over and over and over again. They might have liked doing it the first time. They might like to make sure that the, what they have is fit for purpose and allows the flexibility and extensibility that they need for their, for, for their application. But beyond that, they don't want to spend all their time doing that. So where would you say is a good uh, place to start if people want to, um, uh, I guess, a couple of things. Firstly, where is a good place to start? And then also, what are some pitfalls to avoid if people are kind of starting on this journey uh, and they want to you know, draw on the experiences of people that have built these systems before, built internal developer platforms or been involved in platform engineering? You know, how, how can they get started? I think Aaron mentioned something at the beginning with, you know, an, an MVP with a, a specific case or cases that you cover for. You know, you're not going to be able to build the whole thing in, in, in one go. It's probably better for it to do one thing, but do it well, rather than do multiple things and not necessarily do it well. Uh, things you probably have to watch out is like some, you know, depends on the design and so on and so on, but, but effectively um, conceptually some form of a contract whereby uh, what you produce at the beginning at that MVP phase, when you're going to get people initially, you know, onboarding the early adopters uh, that you sort of internally stick to that contract as well. So that when you move away, when you start to build on top of what you had and you release the next version, the next version, they are not sort of, left behind because, oh, now I need to like re-architect as I'm growing, right? So um, I think you need to be very careful there. And specifically, I mean, you mentioned, Aaron, trying to really look at the, uh, the developer, uh, you know, the developer's job in your organization and where, where is it that they are spending most time? What, what, what are the different activities that they're doing? And, uh, you know, using that as a way to identify where you can provide the most useful help. Um, but in your experience, where is a where is a good place to start? Specifically, you know, what what technical challenges would you say are good to uh, to take on um, in in the platform rather than in the the hands of the engineers? If you're if you're looking to build an MVP and and and, and you have a team together, you're looking to maybe quickly uh, you, you know start on this journey. So I don't know if there's a one size fits all. Here's where you start. The uh, so I've started in a few places. We started on one platform by by basically saying we can see that uh, when people are uh, when people want to deploy, so it's easy enough to get a um, to get a local dev environment up and running, but then setting up all of the environments for uh, that you need to then promote your application through and, and then finally on into prod. The setting up of all of that infrastructure was a huge job, weeks of work. And so we, so we built a platform that took that off their hands and, and collapsed that weeks of work down into less than an hour. And the, um, and that was uh by looking at that specific situation and going, well, this seems like low-hanging fruit. Well, when I say low-hanging fruit, the, it wasn't it wasn't easy to solve. It, it, it's, it's not that we uh, it's not it's not that we uh, achieved that straight away, but uh, it, it, that was where the money was basically. The um, then the other part of the problem is looking at okay, so so we provided a runtime platform that uh, that pre-provisioned all of those all those environments, and so that uh, developers um, didn't have to go through to figure out like how do I run a Terraform script to get all of these things up and running. In fact, where we uh, when we did this, the um, we pioneered the use of Terraform in the uh, in that organization. The the uh, the, the APIs required to actually even use Terraform were not exposed before we started. So uh, the, um, but uh, then the other part that we, uh, that we always had in our sites was like, okay, now we've got the, we've got the runtime platform. Now we need the actual path to get there. Right. And, uh, and that was, uh, and that's that, that path to get there is where we uh, started the, the, the next time we did that, where the runtime platform was not the problem that they had there anymore the the um 
there was there was a there was a kind of a Kubernetes as a service environment that was available to everybody, and so rebuilding that seemed to be a bit pointless. <laughs> the, um, but uh, there was there was a large number of hoops that you jumped through in order to uh, obtain all of the necessary uh, um, Kubernetes environments, namespaces, and uh, and and not just the uh, not just the infrastructure either. The uh, the all of the various uh, steps you have to go through to uh, to just Get access to the various tools and resources, and uh, the uh, it's it's non-trivial. Like where do you put your secrets? Where do you put your uh, you know, all of these things? That the way that a the, the that the developer workflow went was that they would spend a few days. They they, they want to they want to launch a new microservice, right? They they would spend a few days casting around to find where are all the docs because this stuff changes over time. There's always work in this space and that people are producing new services to help you do that. Each one of them has their own wiki or their own self-service portal. And we, we, we looked across all of this and, go, and we realized that uh, half the job was just in put, presenting all of that documentation and, uh, and, and to one consistent, uh, like, here's how you do it. And then starting to automate those steps. There's no reason that you have to go and uh, manually raise three different, three entirely separate requests for three entirely separate uh, Kubernetes namespaces. Uh, there's uh, um, there's the, other, the other part of it was when teams were surfacing like here's 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 this great thing we've built that lets you get hold of a database or a Kubernetes namespace or a this or that. Every one of them presented it entirely differently to the next one, and so we we kind of treated our platform as the integration hub for all of this. We provided a consistent way of people surfacing this uh, all of this stuff instead of going copy paste my example code. We go click this button and it will template it out for you. The uh, and so. Uh, that's uh, so. So that was the approach we took to the, to the more recent uh, to the more recent foray into this space, and which is, in, as I was saying, entirely different to the previous approach. And I think it really is very situational. I guess you can you can you can kind of get started, can't you? If you see it, at, you know, templates and examples are in some ways like you you don't necessarily see to see this exercise as full automation from day one. It may be that you take on uh, the automation of some areas that maybe, maybe uh, you know, the runtime platform is where you focus. And then for the developer experience to get to that runtime platform, you say, right, well, the first thing that we're going to do in order to provide some help and shorten that journey, we're going to do it through getting the documentation together in, in a consistent place. So we're going to do it by providing good examples and templates, but we're not going to do it by building systems that automate those processes. So maybe that's, you know, can be a useful way to uh, bring some value if, uh, you, you know, initially. Yeah, so we, we kind of see it as a, uh, as a progression and each different step in the process it, it follows it follows the same progression where we say okay so to start with uh, we we just list out so the, the so if we say that you've got um, the, our goal is to automate iteration zero so that you've got a path to prod you've got uh, hello world deployed and working in prod like five minutes after you decide you need it that's uh, then then we go okay there's 20 steps to get there the f for each one of those steps, the first useful thing we can do is just give them a link to the docs. We say, okay, here's the 20 steps, list out those 20 steps and give the links to all the docs. That saves a day or two of work for most developers to cast around and figure out where all that is. It's a small step, but each one of those steps can then we go, okay, so first we um, create a link to the docs. Secondly, we, uh, we actually raise whatever request there is uh, for them. Second, the third, the third level of progression might be that we just do it for them at the, uh, and so you you can th those first two steps can be quite a small amount of work, and uh, and you don't you don't need to do that to all of your uh, um, to, to everything on your definition of done here, in order to start providing value. And so uh, it's um, for, for us it's uh, very much we understand that there's, there's a long tail of work to automate all the things, and we want to keep sight of all the things and where, where we are on our journey towards automating them, but we also want to be providing incremental value along the way. So assuming then that, uh, you know, in your, in your organization, you've built out this uh, 
internal developer platform, things are going well, and you've really improved the productivity of engineers, you've got some of these other benefits, you know, you're, you're, you're pleased that you can make some, you've got some really good assurances around some of the non-functionals around your platform and compliance, things like this. I guess one, one pitfall is that, uh, and we, I think we see this in some of the kind of um, older, long-standing um, internal, what you might consider internal developer platforms. I guess one pitfall is that you kind of think, right, our work here is done and your platform actually, it kind of pins the technical approach of the organization to a certain point in time. And, you know, five years on, that's looking a bit, uh, it's just sort of showing its age. And 10 years on, it's everyone's hating it, you know, and it's really holding the organization back. So what do you think about how to approach this problem of, of kind of continuing to evolve your uh, technical approach and, and not allowing your platform to uh, become the thing that, you know, the, the thing that people loved, but then, you know, eventually they grow to hate and is really actually, uh, you know, showing its age and, and everyone is really looking at other techniques and thinking, oh, I wish we were, wish we were doing that. So I guess for me, part of the solution here, so we haven't really spoken about the concept of golden paths yet today, but uh, that's, a, that's a key concept for us. You, we, the, uh, our, our role is to provide a golden path for developers if they want to do, uh, do a, if, if they want to solve a particular type of problem that we have, uh, that we have a solution to, uh, the, the path will be paved with gold to get there, right? The, um, it's, uh, it's going to be really easy for them, super slick. Now, the, uh, the key to platform to, to your platform not becoming a golden cage is to create a golden path for enhancing the platform. So if you're, if the developer comes across something that, uh, that they don't, uh, that where the platform doesn't do that thing and they need it or where, or where it just does it in a way that they, uh, <laughs> that is not working for them, then providing a golden path for, for, for contributing enhancements is, uh, is a key part of it, right? So uh, at that point, your, your, uh, your, golden, your golden cage is no longer a cage because there's a, there's a golden path out of the cage, right? I think as well there's uh, an, a, a little bit um, in terms of the now good um, boundaries between uh, the application developer and the platform. I think, you know, I, I think of a lot of large organization platform engineering exercises where they may go too far in terms of um, uh, restricting the application developer. It may be that the organizer, that the, the, the internal platform attempts to truly solve the entire, the entirety of the problem of building and running applications. And it almost becomes to the point where what the developers get to do is put some code that must be written in a specific language into a text box. And everything from this point forward is done for them. Uh, and I think these are the kind of, and you know, all of the services that they rely on, the, the, the way that they may discover those and interact with those, they are all, uh, all of these problems are solved by the platform. But it really truly requires a whole, a whole organization buy-in. Uh, and all of the, you know, the, the development approach, the languages that are used, they're all dictated by, by the platform. Um, and I think, you know, these days, I think we have some, we have some, some better boundaries, if you like, we have some good ways to, to package applications, uh, such that these internal developer platforms can actually support a healthy amount of diversity in the application space, so that application engineers don't need to feel that like the, the platform that they're using uh, restricts everything about how they build applications. In larger organizations, uh, especially banks, which language stacks or which frameworks you can use is is driven by the company. It, it, you know, you, as a developer, you can make a case that, well, I would like to I don't know, bring Rust in or you know whatever, um, but bringing in technology. Uh, typically has that sort of penalty that once once you bring it in, once you do something in it, it sort of tends to stick around. And, and, if, and if it isn't um, something that, you know, the web market can, where the job market can provide uh, sort of enough, enough support for you, then you're sort of stuck. And um, I, says, I certainly worked in companies where 
that was the case with Scala. Um, they got sort of burned by it because they got Java developers to write Scala, which wasn't actually sort of proper Scala code. And well, therefore, Scala is bad, and now we want to get rid of Scala, right? Uh, but but I'm, I'm sort of digressing a little bit. Um, with with technologies like Kubernetes, containers, um, and so on, you know, you, you're, what you're deploying typically is is sort of well, there are multiple levels of, of abstraction in between. Right. Therefore, as long as the language and framework is supported by the bank, as in it's maintained, there are updates for it, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, typically, you shouldn't have any issues with with introducing any additional languages or or, or, or frameworks. And on the topic of what would be the sort of the I don't know, the right size for the thing you deploy, you know, whether or not you you allow the developer more or less freedom. Again, I don't necessarily see it as like a um, sort of one thing that has to happen. Um, I, at the moment, for example, we're doing you know starter services where you get the code, you you get the Docker files, you, you get the Helm charts with all the Kubernetes setup and so on and so on. You're free to change it any way you like, provided you sort of you adhere to the architectural rules and so on and so on. And those are again decided by the company. And on the other end of the spectrum, you get things like serverless functions. Whereby, as a whereby you do really just provide the little bit of code that you run, and in fact, even though it still uses Helm underneath somewhere, and so on and so on, and Kubernetes, that is abstracted away. The documentation doesn't even mention it because, as a user, you're not meant to be touching that bit. Um, so I think there is there is wide enough scope to uh, to have a platform that caters for all of these cases. So I think um, what you're saying there, Marius, is absolutely right. The, uh, it, and it goes beyond just banks. Any large tech company, they, um, they, they, they often they'll, they'll, they'll start to um, say, like, we'll support this tech stack or these few tech stacks. And the, uh, but the problem is that it's not so much that, they, uh, that you can only choose a language that's supported by the company because that's what the company wants to do. The problem is really that the company made that decision, invested into that uh, tech stack, and now they're, 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 they're a little bit heavily invested and they can't really easily change it. And uh, even that even happens at smaller scale. You know, you'll have a team that uh, says, okay, uh, they look around the, 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 uh, the organization that they're in and they say, okay, so this is the, uh, the platform that we're starting from. And they'll build a scaffolding on top of that platform uh, to, to, to let themselves get ahead. And then they become prisoner of their own scaffolding. The amount of uh, stuff that they've invested in that uh, in that little uh, scaffold that they've built up, uh, it just they don't want to go through all of that pain again, and that starts to hold them back. And so, and so the key thing here is about building things so that they are loosely coupled, so that you can change your mind about one thing later without changing your mind about everything. And the uh, because. Like, like I was saying this at the start, the uh, the reason that you're stuck with certain language choices or technology choices in many organisations is because that organisation just doesn't have the choice. They like they they couldn't do a different thing if they tried. Yeah. Um, the other thing you can do as well is like stick to um, either open standards. That's not to say that every open standard is a great standard. Obviously, you have to do some vetting and so on. But a, a, a good example of this is probably um, telemetry. So OTEL is pretty much the standard for telemetry these days. Not, not that you can't do something else. But um, when we built our platform, we decided to stick with OTEL. And uh, I think initially in the early days, we were using something like Jaeger because it came bundled with, uh, you know, with the solution that we were using. Uh, but ultimately, like, it doesn't really matter what the centralized solution for tracing will, will use uh, because we're using effectively a transparent standard uh, for that aspect of, of, of the platform. Actually, that's a great example, and there's a, I've got a similar one from my own experience. Where a previous uh, previous organization I worked in, we um, part of the platform was a library for doing logging, and uh, and so along with that library came a few hooks. First of all, the library was only, was only available in a, in a couple of languages, 
and secondly, the, uh, the, the the Java implementation of that library had a whole bunch of thread locals for storing uh, for storing various aspects of uh, of your uh, of logging state, and the thread locals thing um, took your uh, so. The, the fact that it was available for uh, for Java locked you into using Java as a language. The fact that it used used thread locals then locked you into using a one thread per requests uh, concurrency model, which uh, in 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 modern development that's uh, that's pretty archaic. <laughs> the um, the you know, non blocking I O and uh, and uh, coroutines and those kind of things are just not on the cards for that. And and I and I contrast that against the uh, the approach that Twelve Factor takes, and it's this. And it, where you, where, where twelve factor just says, write your logs to uh, to stand it out and treat them and, and treat your uh, logs as an event stream, and the uh, and that that very clearly leaves it up to the platform to figure out how to get your logs from standard out to wherever they've got to go. The uh, it it means that your application doesn't even know where that has to be. <laughs> The uh, it's it's and it's a it's an absolutely beautiful piece of abstraction that that uh, like standard out is available to every process regardless of operating system that you're uh, that you're running on. It's a uh, it's really is a, a, a extremely loosely coupled versus I'm, I have to have a Java application that's using this particular library which carries with it this particular thread model, and that now also it needs to know where to send those logs to, <laughs> and that's. Uh, you can see the difference in coupling there. And I think that's a great point, actually. It, often it really is about standards and the problems with, uh, you, you know, the, the, the business effectively being pinned to, you know, a, a point in time of one very bespoke uh, and different solution and implementation that the business came up with at that time. It's often rooted in the problem that instead of looking at what are, standard and best practice ways to do this the platform was an attempt to create an entirely bespoke and different way of doing these things and i guess that's one difference now is that things like you know open telemetry and, and other a whole variety of different standards and interfaces that have now reached a level of maturity and enough of this ecosystem is covered with uh you know similar kinds of um, interfaces that I guess have been born out of the the era of cloud computing and and you know things like metrics and tracing becoming kind of you know re really like standard techniques that everyone is using. We've actually got to a level of maturity of some of these standards that all they're all there if you just if you just sort of find them and, and build upon them. And then the, and then it's funny, isn't it? Because as much as some of these standards are have matured and and appeared and and are now are now really good things to build upon, some of them in some cases cases it's about going back to things like standard out instead of you know instead of looking at more all kinds of strange and funky ways of of logging or um, uh, you know logging to lots of different files or things like this is actually about simplifying and go back going back to say right applications should produce logs to standard out and therefore you know that that then means that the platform itself can worry about where those should be directed but it's only because the solution to the problem is now available elsewhere almost like sort of shift left sort of thing yes exactly because we now actually know that we've got a whole load of solutions now for aggregating logs and shipping them and and ingesting them in other ways yeah that has become somewhat commoditized these days yeah okay well uh it was great talking to you guys thank you very much Aaron and, uh, uh, and Marius for putting aside the time to chat with us. Um, we'd really like to, you know, keep the conversation going. If you've got thoughts about uh, platform engineering, tweet at us at juxpro uh, is our Twitter handle. Uh, comment on this video on YouTube. Get in touch uh, at, with us at info at juxpro if you're interested in uh, building out your own internal developer platform uh, and you'd like some some advice. So thank you. Thank you, Aaron and, uh, and Marius, and see you next time.